continue to uh, keep Joanne Shabelsky in your prayers. They are very much coveted. Sorrow, pain, suffering, and trials comes to everyone if you live long enough. But there is an anchor that goes behind the veil, and that anchor is Jesus Christ. And no matter what we go through here, Jesus is with us. And before I start, uh, I had been praying about what CR could do as a whole, as a body. But it didn't come to me as I was praying. It came to me as I was sweeping the living room floor. And uh, what we're going to do, and we're going to do it for the rest of the summer, we're going to start on the 15th Wednesday, Wednesday evening service, 15th of June, and then it will be the 22nd. So we'll do two Wednesdays in a row, but we're going to go over to the countryside community right across the street, other side of Cracker Barrel, and we're going to share the gospel The Lord, I believe in a God of providence, a God of sovereignty, and he didn't, we looked for a lot of different places to plant CR, and the Lord put us here, and we need to be out in the community. Uh, Alex and Brenda, they're faithful in teaching the word. All of the helpers, when they're teaching and doing ministry with the young people, they're faithful. And we have too talented of a group of teachers not to have children in here to share and pour in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to do this for the summer, all the uh, Wednesdays, those two Wednesdays in uh, June, and then the two Wednesdays also in July. Of course, the fourth Wednesday is prayer and that. Uh, first Wednesday, uh, I'll teach, but those other Wednesdays will be across the street. So if you want to come, uh, we'll meet up here. We'll go across the street. And what we're going to do is just be a part of their lives. It's not only, and I want to understand this is an outreach. So it's not only for the children, it's for anyone who wants to get involved across the street. As we share the gospel, as we get together, we're going to take a kickball and a badminton set. And we're going to just go over there and have fun and love on them. And when their parents are out there, we're going to share Jesus Christ. And we're going to allow the Lord to do whatever he wants to do. Now, as I'm looking at Sean, (laughs) we're still debating how we're going to do the meal. So we're going to be speaking with you and Marilyn and kick that around. Maybe we'll eat first and then go over uh, sandwiches, something like that, and then go across the street. But anyone who wants to be involved, just come out and meet us there, and we're going to have a great time. Uh, Going through the book of John, John chapter 12, the triumphal entry. Every time I go through the triumphal entry, I think about Palm Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But the thing about this triumphal entry in the fourth gospel is that where the synoptic gospel speak on 
all of the other things, all of the details that, is, that are going on with Jesus, how he uh, directs this donkey and he finds this donkey and he tells his, some of his disciples to go and prepare the upper room. And he's giving all of these details in the synoptic gospel. John, the beloved, who has no doubt that the Lord loves him, he tells us all the time. John is taking a close-up lens, and he, and he speaks on the processional that the Lord takes from the Mount of Olives, from Bethany, because he's just resurrected Lazarus. And all that group is following him as they go into Jerusalem. And he, wa- he wants us to see the activity that is going on with the Lord at this time. Verse 12 tells us the next day, and of course that next day is after they had made their minds up to put Jesus to death. They've signed his death warrant. It says the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, the Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees. John only tells us this and went out to meet him. And cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. They get that from Psalms 118. And it's a clear declaration that Jesus, he's the Messiah. He's the king of Israel. Up to this time, Jesus has been really acting in incognito. He's not wanting everyone to know. And he says more than anything at this time, I'm the son of man. I'm the savior of the world. But now he's proclaiming that he is the king of Israel. And many commentators, they speak about how many people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover, the Paschal Lamb, the Seder, the Passover. You get various numbers from 50,000 to 100,000 to 2 million to 3 million. But Josephus says they would At this time, they would be slaughtering around 200 lambs for the Passover dinner. And Jewish tradition would tell us there would have to be 12 men to the one lamb. And if you do that figuration, it would come out to almost 3 million people in the city at this time. And remember, there's a debate that is going on. Will he, will Jesus come to this third Passover? This is the only, the last one that he will go to. And they're saying, surely he's not going to come knowing that they're trying to arrest him because of the hostility. And now they're hearing he has come. So we have a procession procession of people following him. You have to understand that Zacchaeus, with his Armani suit on, who climbs up the tree to see Messiah, is there. You have to understand that blind Bartimaeus, who's not blind anymore, the son of Timaeus, is there. We have to understand that, that Simon the leper, who's not a leper anymore, is there, that Lazarus who has been resurrected from the dead is following him. So there's a 
large group of people coming into the city. And there's a crowd that's coming out. As he crests the Mount of Olives going toward Jerusalem, they're coming out of the city. The day being the 10th of Nisan, those, remember, they have come probably a week early to purify themselves, and they are now arriving at the temple precinct. And they're having their lambs inspected. Either they would bring their lambs or they would go to the temple precinct and purchase one with an, or, uh, uh, a great rate if they did that. This is the Passover celebration. And while the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, is arriving, we know that he will be inspected also. So anticipation is high relative to all that is going on here. It says, they took branches of palm trees. And from the time of the Maccabees, when they went into the temple and, 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 and built it up again and cleansed it with these palm trees, and the palm tree was a national symbol of freedom, uh, and so th- there was once again an expectation that was going on. National liberation, that's what they had in mind. Liberation, being free from Roman oppression. More than anything, most people, that's what they were thinking of. I'll get there. It says, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, save now. Save now from the Roman oppression. Save now from tyranny. Hmm. Then it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Nathaniel said the same thing when Philip brought him. You are, Jesus, you're the king of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found the young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's from Zechariah 9. By the way, this is the only particular phrase that is used in the New Testament. When he says a donkey's colt, it's a diminutive term, and it means that he brought the colt, and the donkey. And Jesus sits on the colt that had never been ridden on before. You guys need to try that. That's a hard thing to do. It would buck the whole time. But this donkey knows who his creator is. And that's special there. The disciples, once again, they are arguing who will be the greatest. Jesus is in the middle of this procession. He's in the middle of this multitude. And Luke 19 tells us he's weeping. He's convulsing. He's just bitterly crying. When all of this praise and and, and this anticipation of deliverance is happening, And matter of fact, I think in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees say, teacher, tell them to be quiet, not to say this. 
And Jesus says, if you had known even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. When he says this, Jesus is speaking about the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And I don't know if you've ever read that book before, but it's a great book, and it's called uh, The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. And he was a detective at Scotland Yard. And he did the math. He calculated up to the exact day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, that exact day, April 6, 32 A.D. And the point is these Jewish, especially the religious leaders, should have known the day, and Jesus holds them accountable. Daniel 9.25 tells us, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks is seven sevens a year. So what he did, he takes 62 weeks there plus the seven That's 69. And then he says 69 times seven, seven weeks is one year, that gives you 483 years. But you have to understand those are the lunar calendar, the the, uh, Babylonian calendar, and those are 360 days years. So what he does, he multiplies 483 times 360 And he comes up with 173,880 days. And then he went back to Artaxerxes, Longemitis, and he says, remember when the temple is going to be rebuilt, not the walls that Nehemiah started, but the temple. And he calculated that, and he gets that once again, the exact day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. And he holds them accountable by their Bible. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he held them accountable, he holds us accountable also. Read your word. All that is to say, read your word. Not only read your word. By the grace of God, obey your word. So here is Jesus weeping. Because he knows his house, their house will be left unto them desolate. The Romans will come in in 70 AD and destroy the temple. So he finds this cult. Now think with me. He had healed people and said, don't tell anyone. Go and show yourself to the priest. He has stayed, Jesus has stayed away from the limelight. When he had fed, remember, the 5,000, including men and women, most people say it was probably 10,000 of people. At that moment, they are deciding, let's seize him and make him our king. So Jesus, he has to flee. But now at this moment, as he's riding into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, he's presenting himself publicly the king of Israel. And he comes riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. And verse 15 tells us, 
They say, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Once again, it's amazing the donkey knew who he was. Jesus says as he's going in, they tell the teacher, make them be quiet. And Jesus says, hey, if they don't proclaim who I am, the rocks will cry out. He says in verse 17, therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him. They had heard about this great miracle worker and what he had did. And remember, this is a multitude here. It's not a small crowd. Matthew Gospel tells us that the whole city was moved. That word moved is seismos the instrument that is used to measure earthquakes. They said the whole city was moved with this noise. It was shaken. And it's very interesting in rabbinic tradition, in rabbinic writing, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, it says in that culture, if a a king or a prince would come riding on a donkey, that means he is coming in peace and tranquility. You know, we look at a donkey and say, man, can't, can't you find a horse? But even remember Solomon, when David says, I want you to pronounce yourself as king, he let Solomon ride his donkey. But that tradition also said, as they're saying, praise now, save now, Hosanna, if they don't accept him, as their king, as their prince, the next time he will come, he won't be on a donkey. He will be on a horse. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Revelation. He is coming to conquer then. These are the days of grace. These are the days of peace. And that's what he's wanting them to understand here. He says in verse 19, the Pharisees, You have the crowd coming in from Bethany. You have the crowd that's already at the temple precinct. All of this action is going on. You have the Sadducees who they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're trying to get rid of Lazarus anyway. You have the uh, Pharisees who are trying more than anyone to put Jesus to death, and they don't like what's going on. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And what they're saying is these halfway measures that we are trying, they're not availing anything. We must put him to death. And this is the only way to stop him. That's their thoughts. You are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now they're were certain Greeks, Gentiles, among those who came up to worship at the feast. These Gentiles here, you you either had the God-fearers who would become completely the proselytes, who would become circumcised, who would obey, follow the law, all those things, or you had uh, proselytes at the gates. And these were not full Gentiles, but they wanted to 
They, these were not, they, they were not following Judaism, but they wanted to know the Lord. And that's what he's speaking of here, just plain Gentiles who have heard about the fame of Jesus Christ, and they're wanting to know him. They have heard about this religious man, this godly man, and all they had on the contrast is these Roman leaders who was diabolical, who had no ethics at all. And they're saying, we want to know about Jesus. So it says in verse 21, then they, these Gentiles, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What great words there. Once again, they had heard, Scripture tells us, that the Jews seek after a sign. Jesus had given them sign after sign if their hearts would have opened up to him. Gentiles, they're not worried about a sign. They're just wanting to see Jesus. Then it says in verse 52, Philip, and that's a Greek name, came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. No doubt by this point in time, by Jesus' response, he starts to sense that he has come to the end point of Judaism. It's not about Judaism anymore. He's on autopilot. Israel is about to officially reject their Messiah. He senses that because he's hearing that these Gentiles are coming to him. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus understands that a great harvest of Gentiles are about to come to fruition. And he's glad about that. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. And many times before, he has said, my hour has not yet come. But now he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. John is the only gospel that speaks of his hour and his glorification all in one. There's really no great separation in the fourth gospel. In the synoptics, there are. They, they seem that, that they can't figure it out, but John has them so linked together. That's the way we should live. We shouldn't wait until everything is smooth sailing and bring glory to the Lord, Victor. We should bring glory to his name even when things aren't going our way. That's what Jesus is doing here. The apostles are thinking, hey, every man is about to be under his fig tree and his vine. The millennial kingdom is coming in. The Roman oppression is about to come off of us. We're going to rule and reign with Messiah Forever. This is their mindset. Once again, they're not thinking much about their sin. I'm amazed. I'm amazed, and I know it's mostly believe, unbelievers because I was one at one time. 
that I'm depending on the government to make things okay. I'm, I'm depending on this person or that person to straighten things out. Jesus is letting us know it's not about whoever he's allowed to be in office. We should pray for those that are in office. God has allowed them to be in office, and we should vote when it's time to vote, in my opinion, and I know I'm right, to thus saith the Lord. Every man, the problem is every man votes his stomach. That's why we're in the situation we're in. But we need to vote according to thus saith the Lord. He makes it very easy. But what I'm saying here, while everybody is rooting for this guy, a pilot, Caiaphas, Annas, whoever, Jesus is saying, keep your eyes on me. So they're thinking the millennial kingdom where we're going to live and reign with him forever is about to happen. And the Gentiles are saying, once again, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus is saying the only way, this is the only way for them to see who I really am. And it can't happen until the crucifixion and the resurrection. Do they really want to see me? Philippians talks about the fellowship of his suffering. No one likes to suffer. Jesus didn't like to suffer. But it's something about suffering when the Holy Spirit comes and sits there right with you in that suffering. The only one that can come close to this of Jesus Christ's suffering is Abraham's suffering. Take thou son, thou only son, the son that you loveth to the mountain I'm about to show you. Abraham at that time can identify with what Jesus Christ is going through. And they can commune together. And that's one thing about suffering, and we, we don't like it, but we understand his fellowship of suffering. He's there. And once again, we're being conformed into the image of the Lord more than we could ever understand through trials than anything else. Verse 24 tells us, Jesus, I, can, I believe he just takes a breath and he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And, and he's, he kicks out an analogy here. It's a picture, once again, of his death on the cross and being placed in that tomb. A picture of the fact that by laying down his life, much fruit will be brought forth. And please listen to this. This is the very crux, what we believe about Christianity. Christianity is about forgiveness. It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his second coming. It's about the scripture and the scripture giving us accurate record of that. And again, there's much of the church that is surrendering the inerrancy of the Scriptures, the fallibility of the Scriptures. 
Webster's. You can't find it in Webster's Dictionary now. But I think of that 1952 dictionary where it speaks of what inerrancy is. This is what it says. Incapable of error, not liable to mislead, deceive, or disappoint. (laughs) This is it right here. Even when we want it to give us wiggle room to go a different way than what we know the Lord says go, we get in it and it flays us and it cuts between bone and marrow and soul and spirit because it's it's impossible for the scriptures to mislead us or deceive us or disappoint us. That's what we hold in our hands this morning. And once you don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, the floodgate of deception is opened up. You might as well throw it away. That's what some so-called churches is trying to do these days. You know, people come and ask me sometimes, would you pray for me? And of course, I said, I'd love to. What do you want me to pray for? And then they say that I find me a husband. And I says, I understand that. But Jesus didn't come for that. That, 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 that you, I find a job and I understand that. But Jesus didn't come for that. You see, the central issue that Jesus Christ came for is sin. That's the issue. That's the problem. Whether it's a job, whether it's a mate, whatever it is, he came because we have a sin problem. And you can take this to the bank. If you have come to Jesus Christ for any other reason, well, I want a a good life, I want a good job, I want a good marriage, and you did not come for that that sin problem, you're you're on shaky ground. Because this world has a way of shaking us. And if the foundation doesn't hold to why you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you might be in a little trouble. Jesus there... Hosanna, save now, save us from the Romans, save us from Caiaphas, save us from Pontius Pilate. And Jesus says, no, there's a sin problem. That's why I read Genesis 5, those three verses. And that's what I've come for, to save you from your sins. And if you do that, if you allow me to do that, Believe me, everything else will fall into place. You'll have a good marriage. He'll bless you with a job that will provide for your needs. And even when dark times come, he will give you grace to go through it. But it's all about that. I love John 7, 17. He says this. If anyone wills, has a desire to have in mind, if anyone wills to do his will, He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. This is the central part of the whole thing. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, 
And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the love of God. We love him because he first loved us. He's our propitiation, the place where wrath is satisfied on that mercy seat. God poured all of his holy, righteous wrath on the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the believers can have peace with God. Our sins are no longer in the way. He says in verse 27, look at that, we'll be back. He says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled, the great king, God himself. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. The hour that he's speaking of, he's moving toward Gethsemane, where he wrestles with the Father. I love the passion of the Christ. I try to watch it at least twice a year. One of my, probably my, the best scene to me is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and here comes the serpent and he's in travail and he's, Lord, if there's any way, allow this cup to be taken from me and great drops of blood. Lord, please, he's wrestling with the Father. And then you know what happens. And he just raises up. His mind is made up. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's the crux of the matter. He yields to the Father. And it wasn't the physical passion, but the taking of the sin of the world upon himself. For Yahweh has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Hitler, Osama bin Laden, child abusers, rapists, a white lie that he would still have to go through the same thing. All of that is on his shoulders. Imagine that. And they're saying, save now from Roman tyranny. And he's crying. That's the just demands of a holy God. He says it is finished before he dies, and then he gives up his last breath. You know, some people say, if you love me, you will do this for me. You will do that for me. I always ask him, I tell him, if you love me, you'll purchase a Bentley for me. He hasn't done that yet. (laughs) I'm still praying one of these days he might. But he says, God demonstrates his love to us. He does that in many ways. And he tells us he wants us. I've said something, but I want you to understand this. Don't get it twisted. He wants us to cast our cares upon him. Whether it's a job, whether it's sickness, whatever it is, after we become believers, then bring it on. Cast your cares upon him. But the central issue, the crux of the matter, Jesus Christ came to save a lost world of their sins. It's it's central to everything we believe. 
It's the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That's what we stand on. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. He says in verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And here we are 2,000 years, the fruit of that. He says, he who loves me, he who loves his life will lose it. And we hear something similar in Matthew 16. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The first two uses of the word life is that word suke, the natural life, the physical life, the soulish life. He that loves his natural life will lose it. He who hates the natural life will keep it for eternal life, ionios life, zoe life, everlasting life, a quality, qualitative kind of life. We receive that when we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. But we experience that to the full in his kingdom an everlasting, eternal life. That's what John speaks of. John is over 90 years of age when he's writing this fourth gospel. He has written Revelation. He has did all these things, other books, and he's writing this fourth gospel. He who loves his life, the person that is in love with themselves, their selves. It's all about me and my happiness, my desires, my family. The self-absorbed life Jesus is speaking of. He says, you'll lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The trading away of the natural or the soulless life for the spiritual life. And so many of Christians, we can be so invested in this world that it's really hard for us to let go and put things in the right perspective. I was telling the pastors and the elders yesterday, I don't know what made me do this, but I just got online and and looked at some of the churches in our vicinity, in the area, and I counted church after church after church that don't have Wednesday evening services anymore. I was telling Lydia coming this morning, I said, I remember a time we grew up, and many of you may have grew up when there was Wednesday evening service and Sunday evening service. We were there. Sunday evening service when the Falcons are playing. I told her when we were in Gwinnett, in Lawrenceville, I'd have my phone. Sometimes when Pastor Mark was teaching, I'd have my phone. I said, man, the Falcons blew another lead. But guess what? I was there. We're almost like the frog in the beaker. Culture, the culture of the day is washing over us. And there was a time, we made time for Wednesday evening and Sunday evening. And I'm not trying to put pressure on anyone, but I want us to look at this thing. 
Because the enemy has a way of just, it's all right. It's all right. We're living in days where we must persevere. This filthy culture of ours, we're stepping in it, believers, every day. And it's splashing up on us. And we need to be washed by the water of the word. And I believe you guys do that at home. Continue to do that. Don't become so self-absorbed that you forget about there's a lost and dying world out here. Jesus wants us to remember those things. We are pilgrims. This world is not our home. We're passing through. And every once in a while, the Lord will shake us. There's a health issue. And when that health issue occurs, oh, it's focused on the Lord now. And we should be focused on the Lord at all times. When that child goes astray, when that child is sick and hurting, focus on the Lord. And the Lord is saying, remember what he tells us, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And we need to have that right heart set. And that's on the Lord. Jesus tells them in verse 26, he says, if anyone serves me, and when he says serves me, that's continually. If anyone serves me continually, continually, him will, he will follow me continually. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. He says two things here. There are those who continually follow and those who continually serve. And the reward of those who continually follow is they will continually be in fellowship, in communion with him. There's nothing sweeter than that. He says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There it is, the hour. And he's still saying, but I want you to be glorified. Have your heart ever been troubled? What do you do? Where do you run? In chapter 14, Jesus tells them, let not your heart be troubled. Here, betrayal is troubling. Here, death is troubling. And he's honest about it. And he says, now my soul is troubled. When our soul is troubled, we have to understand we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We can go to him. Remember, Jesus Christ is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He sukers. He comes to us and undergirds us. And right away it says, Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Don't you wish your prayers were answered that quickly? That quick, he replies. There's three times that the Father speaks to the Son publicly, and that's at the Jordan River. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are asleep. They wake up. Hey, let's build three tabernacles. This is my beloved Son who I am well pleased. Hear you him. And now 
This is the third time. Therefore, verse 29, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thunders, uh, thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. That's intimacy, I believe. I can't, I can't nail that down, but with all my heart, I believe it's intimacy. Because when Paul is on the road to Damascus, that light shining brighter than the sun speaks to him. Jehovah God speaks. Paul understands. Remember, some said it was thunder. They didn't understand. But Paul did. The closer we walk with the Lord, the better we hear him. We understand him. Free information. This is the way it's going to be on, the, on your deathbed, if you have a deathbed. The closer you walk with the Lord now, the more secure you will be when he calls you home. I heard one pastor say, it's like going across a lake. And as you walk, if you've been walking close with him, you can see the rocks as it takes you across. But if you haven't walked so close, those steps of faith. And if you're his child, you're going to get there. But I believe it's a transition. I, I believe I don't even close my eyes that he escorts me from one room that I'm looking at into eternity. Because if there's any darkness there, I'm afraid. And he does not want me to be afraid. And he does not want you to be afraid. There's a clean transition. He grabs your hand. He does it. He does not send his angels. He comes and takes his bride home. Remember when, when uh, Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, and he begins to pray, and he says this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Once again, this voice comes for the people's sake. And then verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of the world. Jesus is speaking of his own death. And at the same time, he's, as, as they are crucifying him, the judgment of is condemning the world. He has said in John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He says, we'll look at in John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He says in verse 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then he says in Luke twenty two fifty three, 53, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And this will be a short, a short lived reign of Satan. Verse 31 tells us, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There's several casting out in the Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, Isaiah 14, 
when Satan comes up with his five I wills, he's cast out of the garden right there because he was jealous of man being made in the image and likeness of God. And then as Jesus sends out the 72 disciples in the book of Luke, when they come back, they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us. And Jesus says, I I saw Satan fall like lightning. So that's another casting out. And then Colossians 2 speaks of Satan being defamed or disarmed in a certain way when Jesus Christ is, is crucified and resurrected. On the cross, he says this in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And then we see in Revelation 12, when Michael and his angels fight, fight against Satan and his angels, and he's cast out. And then the last time the enemy is cast out, he's cast out into the lake of fire. Won't have to worry about him anymore. So this is a casting out that's happening here. Verse 31 tells us, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He says, and I, if I am lifting, lifted up, speaking of the crucifixion, from the earth will draw all peoples. That's uh, really all mankind. That's in italics, unto myself. Now, let me read verse 33 and 34 also. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They know what he's speaking of, being crucified. Who is this Son of Man? Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all mankind unto myself. That's not distinction. Everyone who wants to come to me will be allowed to come. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter color, creed, race. Anyone who wants to come to me can come. He's drawing. There's a gracious invitation there. That's what he says. He's saying it's not just Israel only, anyone. God, I love God so much because he shows no partiality. Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. That word, those words hidden from them is passive. He has nothing to do with it. That's the father taking him along with his disciples and spending time with them because he knows his hour has come. Jesus is pouring into them. John chapter 13 through John 17 speaks of that time. None of the synoptic gospel tells of that, of all the intimacy that Jesus spends with his disciples. The worship team can come up. This is my point. Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. 
Have you seen Jesus this morning? Are you still wanting Jesus to navigate and guide your life? Do we understand what great honor and what a privilege it is that Jesus would call sinners like us unto himself? We could never move one hair's breadth to Jesus. He draws. I don't don't put much stock in a purpose-driven life. I'm a sheep. Sheep needs to be drawn. Cattle need to be driven. I love for Jesus Christ to drive, to, 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 to lead me and draw me with bands and cords of love. Even when I miss the mark or go astray, his conviction always draws me back. And let me say this. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. They're from two different origins. They're both are uncomfortable, but they're from two different origins. Condemnation, we know, comes from the enemy. He wants us to throw in the towel. Nothing will ever change. This is your row of peas that you will have to the, the walk forever. If Jesus loved you, he'd bless you with this. He'd bless you with that. He doesn't care about you. Wanting you to throw the towel in. But conviction says you, you, you missed the mark right there. You're going astray right here. But I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep. And I'm going to draw you back with bands of love. And then when I come back and I repent of my sins, I'm walking right with him in fellowship again. I'll close with this because it was profound. Lydia was saying, you know, you know, if someone you're talking and someone says something and it just hits you wrong, maybe someone you've had an issue with, and things didn't go well, and, and they bring that up, and it hits you wrong, and all of a sudden, oh, gosh, why'd you have to say that? And I said, just like the rapper Ambassador says, your first thought, that first thought will always be the flesh. So you don't react to that first thought. You react to that second one. And that second one is the Holy Spirit. And he comes and says, that's Okay. You may have had that feeling for a moment, but this is the one you should have. I'm working on you. You give grace. You give forgiveness. That's how we grow in the image and likeness of Christ. We never get it right the first time. Conviction is good. Condemnation is not. And if we are one of the sheep of Jesus Christ, there will be many times conviction will come because we're not perfect. But dust yourself off, continue to walk with the Lord, and he's going to lead us home. Let's pray, you guys. Father, there's nobody else like you. You are a God of love. You are a God of compassion. You are a long-suffering God, even with your sheep. 
I think of the prodigal, how the father waited and looked outside every day for his son to return. That's the kind of God we serve. Lord, may we never minimize what you did for your church, what you did for your bride, how you gave everything for her. And that's what you require of us, not to love this life, not to even love ourselves. I can catch that on any of the news stations, love yourself, love yourself. We need to love the Lord, lean not to our own understanding, and allow you to send us forth wherever you want us to go, Father. And we need help with that. We need to yield more to the Holy Spirit and allow him to have his way in our lives. Father, I lift up the outreach that we're going to have at Countryside, that community. Father, I pray that you will bring much fruit there, Father. Lord, I continue to lift up Rick and Joanne, Father, that you will give them that extra measure of grace in their time of need and and just let them feel the prayers that we are lifting up for them, knowing how much you love them. Father, may we surrender our lives to you today better than we did yesterday. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.